Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. Gary Anderson joins us to look back on the Azerbaijan Grand Prix and deliver his verdict on the warring world championship contenders. The Azerbaijan Grand Prix has given us plenty to talk about with contact between the two championship leaders, a first-time winner for 2017, Lance Stroll on the podium. So without further ado, let's get on with talking about it. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. Just one guest today, but a very special guest who hasn't been on a podcast before, Gary Anderson, who needs no introduction really, but of course former Jaguar, Jordan, Stewart, technical director. He's worked for McLaren, Brabham, Ensign, the Anson F3 cars, of course. I think that's a, a small fraction of his of his CV. So thanks for joining us, Gary. No problem. Yeah, it's good to do it. Well, I guess the place to start isn't with the race winner, but it's with the big talking point, which is the controversy between the, the two world championship contenders. Under the safety car, turn 15, Sebastian Vettel hits the back of Lewis Hamilton, pulls alongside him, Swerves to the right, makes wheel-to-wheel contact. After the race, Hamilton Hamilton said that Vettel disgraced himself. Vettel complained about Hamilton brake testing. It's quite an extraordinary sight to see. So what did you make of that whole incident? Well, as it was unfolding, I did think that Hamilton you know, didn't do the right thing. You're coming off that corner and basically you're, you're going very slow there. He had been complaining about tyre temperature for a, a long time, about the safety car going too slow. So to sort of stop, or more or less stop, seemed the wrong thing so you know i thought he brake tested vettel and you know it's a surprise whenever you're driving that close to someone and you're doing you know i don't know what it would be 30 40 mile an hour with you around there you're expecting somebody to accelerate and they didn't so if you just touch the throttle in one of these cars you know the five meters on between the two of you is it's gone in the millisecond so you know for vettel i think it was a big surprise and obviously he ran into the back of him um damaged his front wing and then the, the red mist comes down so you know pulling up beside him waving the fist was one thing maybe that's that's okay turning into maybe that was just a bit too much to be honest so in my opinion at the, at the beginning of the the process you know Hamilton definitely slowed in an area where it caught Vettel by surprise um, but then Vettel was wrong to do what he did but at the end of the day you know the the race is many factors there's many people hitting each other's results through the whole the whole race and the championship has been 
I suppose, between Vettel and Hamilton so far this year has been lovey-dovey. Um, it ain't going to be lovey-dovey anymore, which is probably good for us sitting watching it on TV. It says a lot about the intensity and the pressure that this happened, because Vettel did, to an extent, crack when that happened. They were lucky both got away with, with what happened, Vettel more so, because obviously he was the one that, that caused the uh, incident. But I guess it's worth breaking down, because at the point Hamilton was doing what he did in turn 15, the safety car lights are off. At that point, the the 10 car length rule is out the window and the leader can control the pace. We had the fact that in the previous restart, he'd been warned by the team that it was a bit marginal with the safety car line and the passing the safety car. Lewis did actually say he didn't feel it was close. And in fact, after the race, he reiterated that. So I don't know that he's too worried about that, but he was obviously had that in mind and maybe wanted to give a bigger gap. Vettel had made a, a poor restart previously. So I imagine he was thinking, right, got to stay close, got to stay close, got to stay close. And obviously the leader can control the pace at that point. So... Although he was, he still was on the brake, so in that regard, yeah, he was braking when Vettel expected him to be accelerating. But the lead, the leader's allowed to do that at that point, isn't he? Yeah, the leader is allowed to do that. I mean, I've I've always felt that the safety car rule is a bit strange. They all they always complain about brake temperatures and tire temperatures, and we saw it influencing some of the other restarts from the safety car this weekend. I've I've always thought that the the lead driver should become the safety car. And, and basically, he's in contact by radio. We hear a lot of radio now. If he was in contact by radio to his team and to the FIA as such, then he could be told where there is dangerous areas. And in the rest of the track, you could go at uh, you know, a reduced pace, but at a reasonable pace. And whenever the safety car comes in or the lights go off the safety car, perhaps there should be one more lap where the leader does that to get the cars up to speed. Because, you know, as we saw yesterday, the race was a bit of a mess. You know, it never really got going, to be honest. Uh, the beginning of the race up till um, I don't know the first pit stop started unfolding or the first safety car because of Kvyat's car stopping. You know the race was a normal sort of procession. The only thing that made it right was the safety cars, but it's wrong if we have to have that. But you know, coming off the safety cars, left in the hands of the leader, it's up to him to accelerate when he does. It's up to the people behind him to accelerate as best possible. And you know, as I said earlier, you you touch the throttle on one of these cars and it just accelerates like horrendously with this you know with electric motor power as well the torque is instant so um you know one tenth of a second on the throttle earlier than somebody else and you're 20 meters down the road so Vettel didn't want that to happen and obviously he was trying to make sure it didn't happen he wanted to race to the end of the, to the end of the race and try and get the win out of it but um it ended the way it did now looking at the various wars of words that were going on after let's deal with them in sequence Vettel said that he felt Hamilton should have been penalized for for what he he called a brake test Obviously, Hamilton didn't get penalised for that. Personally, I don't really think there's anything to punish him for there. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, looking at it, you know, relatively what Hamilton did to Vettel was a lot less than what Vettel did to Hamilton. So Hamilton did to Vettel what he needed to do to try to get off that safety car situation as best possible and disrupt the people behind him as best possible, which is what you try and do. Um, so from my point of view, initially I thought, well, he brake tested him. But the FIA have looked at the data and they say he didn't brake test him. He didn't speed up. He didn't slow down. And they have more data to look at than I have. That end result was what Hamilton did wasn't that detrimental. Whereas what uh, what Vettel did to, to Hamilton was, you know, well, you could call it preconceived, but it is the red mist that's here at the moment. Well, certainly I imagine it's one of those things that you do and in the cold light of day you'll think, well, that was pretty stupid because you could very, very easily have... Well, it could easily have been both with suspension damage. Vettel could easily have had suspension damage and Hamilton gone on to win and that would have been the, the worst case scenario. The penalty that Vettel got, which was a 10-second stop-go penalty, effectively that's about 30 seconds with the, traversing the pit lane time. Where do we think that stands in terms of a just punishment? I have to admit, I think deliberately hitting another driver under a safety car is... You could argue for something a little bit more strong on that because I don't think it's a... It's not a great thing to do, is it? And where do you draw the line yes it was low speed so it was always relatively safe it's not like they were doing it at the end of the main straight but deliberately hitting another driver kind of an, as an act of vengeance is probably over the line isn't it yeah it is over the line you know penalties are penalties whether they're, they're right or wrong obviously time um, evolves to a better solution hopefully of, of penalties is a, a 10 second stop and go add it onto your pit lane time you know personally I I think the penalty was there. It would have been adequate. Um, and the reason that Lewis Hamilton didn't think it was adequate was quite simply because his headrest came undone and he had to do a pit stop. If he hadn't had to stop, he'd have been home and dry and very happy with life. But he had to stop for a completely different reason. So 
you've got to be a little bit careful um, because we, you know, the viewing public all want to see racing. And the more penalties you have for people and putting them backwards on the grid and all sorts of stuff, the racing's being taken away for yeah, for, for the correct reasons. But the racing's being taken away. You know, this championship battle, we want to see Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel going into the last race of the season. Maybe a couple of others if possible, but definitely those two going into the last race of the season, still not knowing who's won the championship. And so if the penalties become too draconian, you know, it's going to happen from time to time then you can take away the good racers very, very easily. And I know they shouldn't do it, but at the end of the day, the racing is what it's about. They should be out there on the track. They should be you know, showing us their potential performance and how they would race in a situation like that. And again, going back to the incident, you know, it would have been lovely to have seen that incident not happen and the two of them racing side by side, you know, down into turn, turn one or whatever it is, you know, the, off that safety car just to see you know, a real race, because we haven't still seen that real race yet. You know, this season, what is it, eight races in now, we haven't seen that real race yet between the two of them, just a real good tank slapper going on. Yeah, that's very true. I think probably that race would have been, if that hadn't happened, and even if Vettel had got a good restart and been able to attack a bit, Hamilton did seem to have the race pretty much under control, which is why I guess, from Vettel's perspective, while he's got lots of negative attention, Lewis Hamilton said he uh, said Vettel disgraced himself uh, with what he did um, and said it set a very bad example to younger drivers, etc. So, actually, it's a bit of a, a win overall for Vettel because he's made a what will that be a, a, a two point gain in the championship when he should have had a seven point swing against him. So, I guess it's in some ways a, pre- a pretty good pretty good day for Vettel. Thanks to the headrest, admittedly. Yeah, the end result came out on top for Vettel, for sure. And as I say, that's probably the big gripe, really, to be honest, is, is the fact that the Mercedes headrest, um, you know, these headrests are held then in a way that the marshals can get them out if a driver's hurt so they can get the driver out of the car. Um, and they're held in basically with two dials at the back they pin into the sort of chassis and then the two clips at the front hold it, hold it in position. So any of the driver's head forces is always pushing the headrest into position in a rearward impact or a side impact. So they're not held in very well, but it does show that the Mercedes uh, retention system is a bit vulnerable. I, I think either the dials aren't long enough or it goes into the chassis at the back and or the safety pins can be put in at the front without the dials being incorrect at the back. But one of the two of them definitely needs looking at because, you know, one of the mechanics um, obviously will get the rap for, for it not being done correctly. But in reality, it's probably a bit of a design more than the mechanic. It should be foolproof. It should be that you can't do it wrong because in the heat of the moment, these things do happen, and obviously that's you know that's what did happen. But the design should cover that situation. No, exactly, and it was uh, it's interesting watching Hamilton try to do something about it because obviously there's so much restricted movement in there, partly because of that cockpit surround shroud that you can't just lean and do it. And they're saying, "Well, try and push it back down with your head," but that that was never going to work. Yeah, then by by talking about it, it, did bring it to the attention of the FIA a little bit more because Peter Bonington, his engineer, said, "You know, it'll be okay," and then Lewis said, "Well, I don't like it if it comes out." So they said, he, no, 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 don't talk about that. It's fine. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he, he did he did highlight the fact that it was a safety issue, and it is a safety issue because it's there for a reason. And you can see whenever he was holding it down with his hand, how it distorted so so easily. It's a very very thin piece of carbon or Kevlar, um, so that basically when you do hit your head on an impact, you know, there's no resistance from that. It's just the the foam that's inside it that gives you the deceleration. So it is a flimsy, lightweight piece of kit, but it does a very very good job if you have a side impact or a rearward impact. So. It needs to be there. The car's designed with it. It needs to be retained correctly. Um, and it wasn't. So to have the drop into the pits and, and fit a new one, um, you know, it was necessary to do that. It's an interesting point about looking at the the kind of design, the the fact that it's not completely foolproof. Because like you say, you could, there will have been somebody who should have attached it correctly who didn't. But like you say, you shouldn't be able to be in a position where it looks like it's in correctly, but it actually isn't. So... It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, whoever didn't attach it properly, it'll be, yeah, mistake, not great, try to watch out for that again. But you also need to look at the wider story, the wider picture, and I guess that's what the best Grand Prix teams do, don't they? It's not just not making mistakes, it's reducing the possibility to have mistakes because humans are fallible, particularly when they're under time pressure and in the heat of battle. Well, you know, every component in a Formula 1 car, it's like an aeroplane, you know, it's the what-ifs. So you've got to sort of imagine that what-if and... It was when the wheels were falling off, for example, the, the drive pegs on the wheels, there's basically some pins either on the axle or on the wheel, and they go into holes in the, in the receptacle. Um, and basically for a while, the wheel nuts were able to be started by like one thread or two threads. 
with the studs not correctly into position, with the drive pegs not correctly into position. So then the wheel will go out, the car will go out the pits, the wheel would spin up a little bit, the wheel will come loose and fall off. Now the design is such that the wheel not can't start on the threads until it's on the drive pegs. And so the same with that headrest. It has to have these pegs holding it in at the back. It has to have the two clips at the front. It is a, a mandatory clip as such because the marshals out on the track, of which there are you know, hundreds of every track and they're all different, need to know this system is the same in every car. So that's why it's a, you know, it's like a safety belt catch. It's the same in every car. If they have to get the, the, the driver out of the car for some reason or another, um, they need to know they can achieve that. So the, the, the system and the clipping arrangement is laid out as a simple sort of thing, but it's up to the teams then to instigate that correctly. And as I say, the headrest, I'm sure there'll be revisions going on down in Brackley um, as we speak. I suspect this race will go down as quite significant in the championship because not only was it a swing, a small swing in favour of Vettel in the end with Vettel fourth and Hamilton fifth, but it's one of those ones, it's one of those sort of sliding doors moments as it were because Vettel had front wing damage. Obviously there was a subsequent red flag, you're allowed to do some some repair work to the front wing. In fact, Hamilton said he thought he had a small amount of damage at the back that was seen to under under the red flag. So you could have had a whole range of different scenarios there. You could have had the scenario where Vettel's out, where both of them out, or where both continue, but Vettel's got damage. So this could go down. If it's a, a championship win by a few points either way, you might look at what happened in Azerbaijan as actually that was one of the critical moments where it could have gone one way or the other. And I guess it's just great to see the fact they're still only 14 points apart. So we are seeing this hoped-for championship battle where it's kind of ebbing and flowing from, from one weekend to the next. Yeah, it's... It's difficult to understand the red flag rules. We've had a lot of controversy because people can come in and change tyres during the red flag period. And that was mainly allowed because of safety, because the, the red flag was put out because of the debris on the track. Debris on the track was a habit of cutting tyres. So there was that awful Monaco Grand Prix, wasn't there? Where it, was it 2011, where there was this brilliant setup when you had, it was Vettel, was it Vettel Alonso Button? And yes, Vettel yes, had the worst, yeah, yeah, had the yeah. oldest tires. Alonso the second mm, best, yeah. Button the best. So you're watching, you're thinking, oh, this could be an absolutely incredible Horrible, finish. Then yeah. Petrov stuffed it at the swimming pool, and it just yeah. ruined the race. No, that's that's the problem. It does ruin the race. So I think the red flag rules, and and there was a lot of controversy, a lot of chatting about them on the uh, on the coverage yesterday. As to, I don't think anybody really understands the rules. But if you you know if you take it as a sort of fairly simple thing, and I, I'm, you know I think I'm a fairly simple person, from my point of view, you would allow everybody under a red flag rule to change tyres because that's a safety issue. If you've got a cut tyre from debris on the track, which is what happens from an incident, um, then that's that's acceptable. But as far as car repairs are concerned, I don't think you should be allowed to do anything. If your car's damaged in, in an incident uh, and you can take advantage of it during that period, then that's wrong. I think you, you sit in the pit lane, you can change your tyres, anybody in the pit lane can change their tyres if they want to. Um, and then if you've got damage in your car, you, you start the race and you come back in the pits and fix it. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can go out and, and cause the red flag and fix your car um, and go on and win the race, which is really wrong. You know, so it is really wrong. And, and Vettel, though he didn't win the race, was, was party to that in a way. Yesterday he was able to change his front wing. Lewis was able to fix the diffuser a little bit. Lewis, but his team were able to fix the diffuser a little bit where it was damaged. And... and so the, the the price that was paid for the incident was nothing. Yes, it was debris on a lot of the track, not just because of those two. But at the end of the day, I think the red flag rules should be a much more black and white situation. And to get Raikkonen and, and Perez getting a penalty for fixing their car in the garage as opposed to in the fast lane of the of the pit lane, it's, it's just a bit mad. You know, the whole thing's a bit mad because they come in with, with failed cars as such. Um, to go in the garage and work on them is the correct thing to do. Um, so, uh, you know, somebody needs to look at this a little bit because it's it's confusing for somebody who's been involved in it for 40-odd years. Um, it must be confusing for somebody who just switches on to watch a Grand Prix on a Sunday afternoon because nobody knows what's really going on, even the commentators. Well, the last thing you need is that to happen when you've got such a, a chaotic race. And obviously, we've focused on Vettel and Hamilton so far because that's where the controversy was. But there's so much more going on in that race that at one stage it looked like it was going to be quite an easy, easy Hamilton win. Obviously, Daniel Ricciardo won the race, the first win of the season for Red Bull, the first since uh, Malaysia last year, which was last October, uh, I think. So that's a bit of a bonus for Red Bull. Ricciardo didn't go into the race uh, expecting to uh, to be in that position. Obviously, qualifying had gone 
quite badly for him. He started down in 10th. He'd had the crash in Q3 and then had the early pit stop because they had some blockage in the in the radiator. So I think he was down somewhere around the neighbourhood of 17th place. And then the race just, just came to them. And I guess that's what we've seen there again is Ricardo. He has does have this knack of when a race sort of opens out for him. He tends to execute it. And I guess the thing that summed that up was the pass he made at that final restart when he got past, well, Stroll got past Massa, and who was obviously having his damper problem at that stage. And then Ricardo managed to obviously get past Massa and then ambush Stroll into into the first corner. Effectively, that was the pass for what was the de facto lead with what happened after. So while there were some circumstances that went in Ricardo's favour, it was just a well-executed victory for him, wasn't it? It was a well-executed victory. I mean, he came in, I think it was the end of lap five, with debris and one of the brake ducts. The brakes were overheating. Um, and, you know, he was going to try to run through to, you know, the end of the race, probably. But the red flag then helped him. He got fresh tyres on the car. Um, so there's a little bit of help comes from, from everywhere. He, he he felt his day was over at the end of lap, when he started lap six. So it, it's very good at, as you say, taking those advantages when they're, when they're thrown up at them. That, that overtaking manoeuvre they did on the, on the two uh, Williams cars was pretty impressive. I mean, that was a big late-breaking manoeuvre. The car stopped well. It really just did stop fantastically well. It would be very easy just to have tripped up one wheel there and locked it, and suddenly you got a problem. But he didn't do that. You know, he just got the car under control, down the inside, and that was it done. So, yeah, I'd love to have seen Stroll lead a Grand Prix. Um, you know, it was there to be had. But for Ricardo, he's, I think he's been outshone a little bit this year with Verstappen. So he needs to sort of pick up those results when he can. Verstappen is, is still showing that he's no slouch, to be honest, and he's had a run of bad luck. But um, when push comes to shove and the two of them are on the track at the same time, Verstappen's pretty impressive. So Ricardo's going to have to earn his credibility and that race one will, you know, and his race driving, to be honest, will help him on his way for a little while. Um, whether that lasts forever, I don't know, because obviously there's, there's others out there that are looking pretty impressive as well. I think you can make an argument for Red Bull having the strongest overall driver lineup because Verstappen obviously has been a, something of a force of nature since he's come in. Ricardo, I do rate he's capable of being incredibly quick great in race conditions and I think they're both drivers who have world championships in them in the future it's it's a shame that for Ricardo that's only his fifth win because he's been one of the preeminent Grand Prix drivers ever since he moved up into into the Red Bull main team in, in 2014 and he's been feeding on scraps effectively and I think we saw last year after losing the Monaco Grand Prix when he sort of made a few comments about well I know you know time's starting to run out a little bit because you can only sort of be He's no longer a driver on the up. He's a, a driver who's theoretically at his peak at the moment. Obviously, he doesn't always have the car to to show that. Whenever you've got a situation like they have with the, the Renault power unit at the minute, you know, I think there's still debate as to whether it's good or bad. I don't think it's as good as Mercedes, and I don't think it's as good as Ferrari. But it's knocking on the door of Ferrari, I suppose. Uh, it's a, Certainly in race conditions, I think. In race conditions, Qualifying yeah. conditions, it seems to stretch out a bit, but you don't win at Baku with a huge power disadvantage. Obviously, he was able to outperform the Williamses in the end. Yeah, I think I think if you look at their car, they put a big effort into getting a car that would work well at Baku. The, uh, the, the rear wing assembly, the you know, just trimming the downforce of the car. And, and that's what I say about the braking. You know, the, the, car, the car does create this reasonable downforce from the underfloor of the car. So the, you know, the, drag, the rear wing is one of the drag air parts of the car that you can influence and change and they went they went whole hog at it to actually make to set, get a good setup for that type of track because of low speed corners and, and high speed track you know it's um, it's one of those sort of situations where the the way they run their car with a, a lot of rake front right height low and the rear right high will give them you know decent grip and low speed corners decent front end and low speed corners so if you can get rid of the drag at high speed um then you make up for some of that engine deficit i suppose you might call it but they've never, since 2014, they've never really had the luxury of, of the best engine in the pit lane. Um, so they've always been playing a little bit of catch-up. It's been circuits that suited them where they've, they've won that. So I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong to think of Ricardo only having won five Grand Prix if you take the whole thing, the whole picture from 2014 with the new engine regulations through. It just needs to be, um, you just need to make sure that he keeps on doing a strong job. And, you know, the only competition you have at a Grand Prix is your teammate. For sure, you've got to beat your teammate. Absolutely, and it's going to be incredibly difficult to do that against someone like Max Verstappen. I think he's one of those people who, 
at best you kind of keep on their toes you're, you're never really going to be able to beat them I guess it's a bit like Lewis Hamilton isn't it you can't really expect to beat him but you can expect to match him and I guess kind of do what Rosberg was able to do on his good days yeah you've, you've got to you know you've got to set down your standards of what you're going to try and do and Lewis for for, for Valtteri Bottas I mean Lewis is an ideal uh, candidate because he's, he's respected by everybody as probably being one of the fastest guys in the pit lane at this point in time you know on that one-off lap without doubt he's incredible as he showed in qualifying um, and Max Verstappen is the same and I think you know, you, you've got to be measured against those guys at some point in time you can't keep hiding you know it's not it's impossible just to keep hiding you have to make sure that you end up um, beating them or knocking on the door of beating them constantly whether that is on one lap specials and qualifying or whether that's over wrist distances I say the one thing I do think is Ricardo is a very solid wrist distance driver he's very good at just pumping in those laps and he he doesn't get um, uh, dis- dis- disrupted or um, you know he doesn't let things influence him too much like he could very easily at, at uh, Bacow let that early pit stop influence his performance well that's a very that good happen. point and there are drivers whose heads, w- heads would drop in that scenario I guess the in recent times the driver I always think of the as the ultimate kind of head dropping driver was someone like Jarno Trulli who's stunningly quick and brilliant capable of being brilliant in qualifying turned in a few fantastic race performances is second place at Suzuka in 2009 for Toyota was one of the best individual Grand Prix drives you'll see but it just needed like one thing to go wrong in a weekend and he seemed to just let his head drop and he could never quite recover but Ricardo not only just sort of says well you keep going and anything can happen but he really buys into that and I think you've hit the nail on the head there with what he's able to do that just keeps going keeps going and he'll always maximize the result whether it's fifth eighth tenth even if it's a day when he's not quite able to get as much out of the car as he normally would do he will finish where he can finish yeah I mean that's true and that's what you have to do you're saying about Yarno truly uh, physical was was very similar to that as well and whenever I look at, back at it it was the opposite way around if you for some reason put them in a good position they're able to hang in there. If they're in a bad position, that's it. They're, they're beaten. So that you never get this understanding of whether or not you know that you you have a good decent car or whatever because they're up and down at a yo-yo. And you want a driver like Ricardo who will be a hundred percent every lap and will get you the best result possible on any given weekend. I'm I'm worried a little bit about Max Verstappen. He let his head fall a little bit. Now he's had. You know, constantly problem after problem after problem. You can understand that, I guess. You can understand that. I haven't seen it yet, but he just needs to be a little bit careful. And, that, and that's one thing he can take out of Ricardo's book is the fact that you just don't want to let, let it get to you because it's so easy to let it get to you and then you never recover. So if he needs to learn anything from Ricardo, that's probably it. And uh, I think he will do. Well, there's lots of other things to talk about in this race. It's difficult to know what order to do them. Obviously, Valtteri Bottas was second, Lance Stroll was third. I guess in that podium battle, we've got to wind all the way back to the start and the collision between Bottas and Raikkonen uh, at turn two on the on the first lap. Kimi Raikkonen was pretty unimpressed. He basically said that he thought Bottas braked early and then he knew he braked early, so he released the brakes a bit and then came back into him. Watching the replay, it looked like Bottas wasn't doing anything untoward, but he just clouted that, that curb and that sent him out wide. Yeah, I think you know it's the old case of two and two one don't go. You know, it's, it's the first lap of a Grand Prix, and um, everybody's diving for position because they know Formula One cars the way they are, overtaking no matter what the track is is very very difficult. Anything you can get done in that first lap while drivers are trying to come to terms with how their car feels or understand the car or they're they're bottled up because of some other cars, then you've got to take advantage of it. And, you know, I, I think. I think Bottas was a bit ambitious, is all I'd say. Uh, diving down the inside there and, and having to use that curb, you know it's going to do something to the car that's that's going to unsettle it in, in one way or another. And obviously, if you take his, if you look sort of from up above, look down, I think his trajectory coming off that curb and, and um, the corner were not sympathetic with each other. I think Kimi was the one that was uh, you know, the end result of it, driven, driven into, driven, driving into the side of him. So I think. Yeah, I would I would sort of say Bottas has needed, needed his knuckles wrapped there. But inconsistency in, in stewarding and policing the, the formula is, is, is quite apparent, I suppose you might say. It's quite difficult. What was a racing incident on the first lap? And that's what, all you could say it was, really. But I think Bottas, I side with Kimi there, I think Bottas was a bit ambitious in what he tried to get out of it. I'd agree with that. And you could probably say that that collision did fulfil the criteria. I think that the phraseology that was used for the way they've changed the stewarding this year was that they'll only give a penalty if it was wholly or predominantly 
the blame of one driver. And I think ultimately you're right, Bottas certainly was predominantly to blame that. The only thing you can say for Raikkonen is that if you're going around the outside of someone, there's always a little bit of a, a risk element in it. Yeah, you do. You do put the risk risk of that if somebody on the inside goes off, 99% of the time they're going to hit you for sure. But you should be able to do that. You should be able to get the respect between two drivers that um, allows you to go racing. Um, Kimi, you know, Kimi couldn't just disappear. He was there. He was committed. Um, Bottas was the one that sort of had made the poor, the, the effort up to that corner wasn't as good as it should have been. He was sitting in the front row. Suddenly he was back in the pack and needing to recover from that. And, you know, he so he was the one with the pressure on. I think if, he's, if you call it red mist with Vettel running into Hamilton, it was Bottas that had the red mist to try to uh, to recover from where he had obviously made a mistake in the, on the start. And But sometimes you have to settle down a little bit and back it off because, you know, we often said that, you know, no motor race is one on the first corner of the first lap. You have to just bide your time to make it all happen. And then, you know, again, it probably all comes from the fact that these cars, they just, they just can't follow each other closely enough to overtake. So you're pressurized into that opportunity to take it when you when it's put in front of you. But I think a bit more restraint, to be honest. And I guess also with Bottas, because even going back to Williams' days, there were question marks within the team about how incisive and aggressive he was on the opening lap. And so maybe that feeds into it. He hasn't got a contract for next year yet. So it's all a bit kind of right, the stakes are high, etc., etc. So I guess that combined with what you're talking about, the the premium put on first lap passes, because you can't make up so much ground, is uh, it's valid. Obviously, Lance Stroll, he was pipped to second place by, by a tenth of a second. But considering what Stroll's been through this year, he's still only 18, a lot of criticism. Some errors. Also, there were some people who made errors sort of on his behalf, shall we say, and and, and put him off. Even in Australia, when he was off the track, it was a braking, uh, it was a brake problem rather than, than his mistake. But I was a little bit disappointed. I tend to think with rookies, you give them the first four races, and then when you get to Spain, where you've done the testing, a track they know you expect to see something a little bit more solid, didn't quite do that. But it does seem that what happened in Canada, getting his first points, he outqualified Massa in Baku, did a good solid race. He was one of the few people who I can't think of a particularly significant mistake he made all weekend, which considering the amount of crashes and offs and visits up escape roads we saw was uh, was pretty impressive. So I was I was impressed with Stroll, even though you would think that he'll be a little bit frustrated not to have held on to that second place. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think he'd be a little bit frustrated that he didn't have to win the race. That, that was a big frustration because I think the second or third thing, he, he showed great maturity um, in being able to manage it the way he did. I mean, you've you got to remember that this guy Caxton, Valtteri Bottas in the Mercedes, they, you know, they, they've been pretty good over the last few years. So they're being caught in a car that, for sure, is a step ahead of the Williams. So it's no... It's no you know, big shame that, that that he lost that one position right at the end of the race. And I think the way he did the way he did lose it right on the finish line was actually quite good because if he'd lost it a lap earlier or something, um, then he might have, head might went down a little bit and, and you know Vettel was coming behind him. So he could have lost third very quickly as well. So I think, you know, he drove a very mature weekend, I think is the best way of putting it. He um showed he can stand a lot of pressure and was able to, you know, lap on average, you're probably talking about second lap, but us was quicker than him. But that's real, you know. That's that's there. So it's not like it's you know Lance Stroll is a second slower than Valtteri Bottas. It isn't like that. You know the car is slower. So he did the best job he could. He kept it consistent. He didn't clip the barrier or do any damage or damage a wheel or any of that sort of stuff, which could happen very easily for him. So I think you got to give him credit for that. Now I think one of the things that's come out is this bit testing a 2014 car. Um, in Austin, before they went there, obviously he's got some advantage by doing something like that because you can come to terms with some stuff. And if we go back through the years with drivers, I've many, many times I've had new drivers come into the into the formula, and the first thing they'll sort of complain about is is understeer, and you sort of set the car up and change the car a little bit, and you'll get rid of the understeer, and and um, off they go. And yep, car's much better, car's much better. But the next thing is they make a mistake. And that mistake you pay the price for. Whereas when you've got a little bit of a lazy front end on the car, a little bit of understeerable end of the car, it gives you that little cushion. And I wouldn't, I don't know what um, Stroll, how he's changed the setup from what he thought was good at the beginning of the year as, as the race has unfolded. But I wouldn't be surprised if he did try to tidy up the understeer in the car, get rid of the understeer. And suddenly you make the car more nervous and then it bites you a few times. 
And if he's gone back to having that little bit of a lazy front end, that little bit of a cushion, I suppose you might call it, then it'll give him more confidence because he knows what the car's going to do. It's not just going to swap ends on you immediately. And that's the worst thing. If you're driving on a knife edge with the balance of a car that's going to bite you, you can't use your, you know, your sort of talent. You're always driving the car and you know it will get you at some point in time, potentially quicker, but it will bite you. So hopefully he's gone back to a setup in the car that will give him that little bit of a window of understanding, a bigger window of feeling. And we could see some good results from him because, you know, as I say, he drove a very, very mature weekend the whole time qualifying um, right through and, and through the, that last part of the race whenever Bottas was catching him it been so easy to just made that little error but no he didn't do that Well it was interesting because I was watching very closely at the end of the race because it was the main point of interest the gap between the two and there was a point kind of earlier in the chase when you thought yeah he's definitely going to get him and then Stroll seemed to pick up the pace and you're like oh okay no he's got he's gonna he's actually going to be quite comfortable and then there were Bottas was banging in these fastest laps and I wonder whether Stroll was just tightening up a little bit because it's that that kind of thing of when I guess when you're almost on the back foot, it's almost easier to uh, to deliver that that pace because he maybe thought, well, it's probably pretty inevitable. Bottas will catch me, but let's try and do it. And then he thought, oh, actually, I've I've kind of got this here. Uh, it was a little bit disappointing because I thought if he got to turn one on the last lap, still ahead, he should have been fine. And I guess perhaps the last corner there was just a little bit of a a slight error that made the difference. He needed another tenth of a second to to cross the line. But I should also add, Vettel was not far behind. Uh, Bot- uh, was not too far behind Bottas and Stroll was only was just under two seconds ahead at the line so Vettel was also in play there and I think for Stroll the difference between second and third is negligible it's a podium finish great result I think if he'd not done a good job he'd have been fourth and the different uh, losing a podium and dropping to fourth would have been a, a much bigger blow so I think overall you think yeah fair play to him he's, he's done a, a very good job with all the the kind of the doubts and the critics echoing in the, in the back of his head, like you said, he's a good driver. You don't win European F3, winning 14 races last year without being a good driver. I don't care about the setup. Yes, the Prima team was built around him. He had teammates that were there to help, so he had every advantage. But every advantage doesn't mean you can drive the car fast. You've still got to be able to do that. And he's had every advantage coming into Formula 1 with the extra testing in the in the old spec car. But still, to be able to finish third in a Grand Prix... No matter what happens in it, you've got to be able to drive the car. You've got to finish third. Yeah, it doesn't matter what formula you're in, to be honest. You know, talent will shine through. And, uh, you know, there's many drivers out there you could take and you could have them pounding around every day of the week and they still wouldn't want to race at the, week- at the weekend. So, you know, he is a talented driver and uh, it's great to see. It I means he's, he's only, what, 18, coming on 19. So it's not as though he's got you know all this experience behind him. He hasn't. He's got some good miles behind him. But if you go back in Formula One to like when Lewis Hamilton started in, in F1, I mean the miles that he had in an F1 car, and at that point in time you could run in a current F1 car. It wasn't a three-year-old car. It was a current F1 car. It was you know your car. You could just pound around the racetracks. So it's no different. You know you just got to put the, the effort into it, the work effort into it. And talent will shine through. And I think Stroll is a talented driver. Just, I said, I think, earlier in the year, whenever we were talking about it in my columns, that, you know, given to the middle of the season, it's not driving the car that's the big thing. It's just fitting into a Formula One weekend and getting your head around all that stuff that goes on. It's alien to a lot of these people. You know, it's, it's such a such a big hype, media coverage that people want to talk to you, you know, all of that stuff. It's all part of the pressure of Formula One weekend. Driving the car is actually, you know, whenever they get in the car, I think that's the simplest bit, to be honest. That's the bit they love so much. It's all the rest of the stuff that, that means that you just don't have your own time to think about your own things. So um, I think he's got there now. He's got, a, you know, a, a good result in Canada. He's home, home race as such. Um, he's got a very good result in, in Baku. Can he keep it up? It'll be tough. You know, there's still two Mercedes cars and there's two Ferraris. There's two Force Indias that are up there. Um, there's two Red Bulls. You know, so to finish in the top 10 is a decent result for all of these midfield drivers, you know. That's the thing you've got to try and do. After that, it's down to the luck of the draw and, and what happens in that given weekend. Well, it's going to be down to delivering consistent points finishes now, isn't it? But it's great for him to have this result. It should be noted, he's only 18. He's only missed the, the youngest podium finisher in F1 record by a couple of weeks in terms yeah. of age. So let's be fair to him he's had a lot of criticism but he's still an 18 year old on a grand prix podium and only his eighth race in a car that isn't really a podium finisher in normal circumstances so so all credit to him now chance to be a little bit more negative if you were still 
technical director at uh, Force India, which of course was formerly Jordan, and you saw what Esteban Ocon and Sergio Perez did, and you had a look at where they were in the race and who was behind them at that time. Certainly, obviously, you could argue that collision contributed to the red flag. Without that, things might have been different. But there was certainly po- there's potentially a double podium finish on the cards there. Maybe even a even a win. So uh, the end of the race. What 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 are you having to say to to Esteban Ocon and Sergio Perez after their their turn one contact? Well, I think you know we need to go back to Canada, I suppose, before we could sort of say what happened in in Bacow. Um, obviously. There's a lot of controversy there about who should have given team orders, or they should have given team orders, order, or not given team orders. And I say, I think they should have either not given team orders or given team orders, rather than this slightly weird halfway house. One of the two would have been the right thing to have done. Um, I think again, you need to know all the facts. But I would have sided with Perez there having a go because Perez had been there trying to have a go for a long time. We all know, that, as I've said many, many times, Formula One, the cars are horribly follow each other. So to pass somebody genuinely, you need that person to make a mistake. And unfortunately, it was Ricardo, and he doesn't really make mistakes. That's the thing about Ricardo. That's what we said about it earlier. So to get him to make a mistake, to allow uh, Sergio Perez to get past, would have been very difficult. And the same for for, uh, for Ocon, Esteban Ocon. You know, it doesn't happen as a miracle just because you get better tyres, because you'll get behind that guy, you'll get within a second of him, your car starts sliding all over the place, you're going to overheat or damage your tyres, and you can't get any closer. You know, say we talk about this mythical twenty percent downforce that you lose whenever you get behind somebody. It's true. So if that happens, it doesn't matter whether you're Sergio Perez or Ocon. So the, the team, from my point of view, um, in Canada, should have said no, Sergio, keep going at it, get it, get it done if you can, because the chances of it happening with somebody else coming up there were still more or less zero. But the most important thing is don't lose time on the way there. Don't keep battling each other. Make Ocon drop back a little bit to get out of Sergio Perez's merge because the last thing he needed to do, he needed to have was the pressure of somebody going to dive up the inside of him if he made a little mistake when he was trying to pass um, Ricardo. And at the end of the day, that's what happened. You know, that's why they all tripped up over each other and Sebastian Vettel got uh, got past him. So they weren't very decisive in their decisions in Canada. And then coming to um, Baku, I think Ocon tried to. Pay, pay Perez back on the track and I think he was wrong I would I would have had to have had a word with him and said look um, this wasn't this wasn't really on this isn't in the spirit of the team he definitely made a dive to, to try to pass Perez whenever again they all tripping up over each other you know it's, it's, it's so easy to sit back here and say these things but when you're all tripping up over each other there's an opportunity there you can see a gap that looks the size of a car you go for it but sometimes you've got to have a little bit of respect for your teammate and so they didn't have the respect there, and I would have said it was Ocon's fault. He was the one that sort of instigated the incident. And for, I'd feel, if I was praised, I'd feel pretty aggrieved, to be honest. And I would need it straightened out. It needs to be straightened out right now. That on the track, you know, you two um, have got to stay away from each other. So I've had it before with um, Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher. Now Argentina you know, 97. A long time ago, but still exactly the same problem. A race, Jordan. Could well have won had that collision. I wish Jordan could well have won and was on the way to to doing getting a, a very good podium at least. Uh, and again, it would, been, it would have been second and third at worst, most likely. Yes, yeah, I would I would imagine that's what would have happened, but it wasn't to be. So you know, you can put up with it once, just um, and I think they need to learn now that it could be very easy to throw their fourth place in the championship away um, because of the drivers being a little bit too enthusiastic. I think, you know, there's nobody sort of better at looking after tyres, bringing in a race result. You know, Perez is another uh, Ricciardo, in a way. He, he, he'll bring you in a result. If there's one to be had there, he'll bring you in that result. Ocon, I think, is is potentially one of the good guys for the future. Um, but he'll get tarnished if he doesn't start to respect that. And he needs to respect that a little bit. You know, they were into a season here that's going to be tough because that midfield bunch have all had problems. They're all going to make their car better. So you've got to be very careful. You've got to take points when you can get them. And this weekend in Baku, you know, they come away with uh, a lot less points than they should have. Never mind the fact they could have been on the top step of the podium. But the points lost, they never replaced that. Mm. I mean, Ocon came back three to salvage, sixth place. But that's uh, that's a big blow. And obviously, it's a, a swing in Williams's favour in the, the championship. Although, I guess it could have been worse because Massa had the damper problem. He was running ahead of Stroll. You could argue that Massa may have had a shot at winning that race 
had the had the rear damper not gone, which would have been his first win since Brazil two thousand eight. So I guess Massa's another driver who's probably sitting there thinking, Oh, what could have been? I mean, as Fernando Alonso said, he could have won that race as well. I think anybody that could get to that checkered flag first could have won that race. And there's a lot of things on the way that try to stop you from getting to that checkered flag. So you've got to believe in, in what can happen. Ifs and buts and, and motor racing have been happening for a long, long time. The end result is that, you know, Daniel Ricciardo did a good job. Red Bull did a good job in how they went about their, their, their Sunday business. And that's that's the end result. Valtteri Bottas drove well to recover from being last and the lap down as such. Um and Lance Stroll did a great job. Top three in the podium, all for very, very different reasons, end up there. That's the F some that's the motorsport. And it's certainly one of those races in which while there was lots of luck at play and incidents going on, the drivers who did get the results, for the most part, deserve credit. Looking lower down the results, Kevin Magnussen finished seventh. Now he was up in third at one point, but the Haas was nowhere near quick enough to stay up there. And actually, you would argue that from that position he was when he was up in third, seventh was the was the best result he could have got. So a really good drive from from him, especially on a weekend when Grosjean was uh, in a shock move, complaining extensively about about the brakes. Carlos Sainz had that spin on the first lap. He said he sort of sacrificed himself to keep out of the way of the rejoining Kvyat. Not seen it that many times, but you do wonder whether he overreacted a tiny little bit, which which does happen. But he came through to eighth. Fernando Alonso ninth place. Pascal Verline getting tenth. So. The minor points positions, even though there was quite a bit of a attrition and people being delayed, you know, again, good performances from people. And yeah, Magnussen in particular, you'd say, yeah, that was best possible result. Very good effort from a driver who's got a lot of ability. I don't always think he delivers it, but that shows how good a driver Kevin Magnussen is. Yeah, it's, it's total, you know, you sometimes question his total commitment to it all. He drives well. Um, but does he put the other stuff into it behind the scenes? And, you know, we don't know that, to be honest. But Well, certainly with teams he's driven for before Formula One and in Formula One, th- there's been a lot of people questioning the the approach in private, obviously. So uh, the the version I've heard from people is that he kind of gets to a certain level of understanding and achievement on something. And then normally it's right. OK, you've got to there. You've got to stage one. Right. Now let's get on to stage two. And maybe there's just that little bit of application to want to get. 100% out of absolutely everything you want to see but he's still quite young and the raw materials are there. Yeah the raw materials are there for sure but as you say I think that top 10 result from from fourth backwards well I don't know but Vettel and, and Hamilton I suppose they were there because of various incidents but the, the, the guys that were there you know like Magnussen um, like Verheim they're all in the right position, aren't they? The race, it unfolded. The guys that kept their nose clean got to the checkered flag, including Fernando Alonso. I mean, as I said, Fernando said he could have won the race. Obviously, he could have won the race. He's won two world championships. He's won many Grand Prix. His talent is, without doubt, second to none. Um, the, the big problem is that, you know, you've got to just take the advantage and do what you can on that given weekend. And Magnussen, as you say, running in third position, it wasn't realistic. It wasn't going to be. So they could be coming away from there very disappointed they didn't get third and end up seventh. But actually seventh is a very good result for, for uh, the Haas team. So take what you've got and, and sort of think how you build up from there, how you how you move forward from that, rather than being disappointed in what might have been if, if, you know, if and but. Um, you know, going on to Fernando Alonso a little bit and Honda, obviously, they've both finished the race this weekend. And first points of the year. First points of the year. And they've got what seems like this spec 3 engine that they ran on the Friday that Fernando ran on the Friday seems to be potentially a bit better yeah Hasegawa San who runs the Honda program said it's worth at least two or three tenths of that that new spec 3 v6 so that's potentially encouraging you know if you look at just as a round rule of thumb number 10 horsepower is about a tenth of a second if it's 10 horsepower across the range um you know, if it's a peaky engine and it's 10 horsepower, you know, one RPM, then no. But 10 horsepower across the range will give you about a tenth of a second. So that two or three tenths of a second is 30, 30-ish horsepower across the range, which would be probably not wrong for Honda to, to have found. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the, the relationship between McLaren and Honda has got 
pretty strained at the moment, I suppose. Um, well, McLaren are, are sticking the boot in at every opportunity. We've had Alonso. Alonso's been doing it for ages. He had he did another one of his special edition messages. I think he mostly in races just sits there making messages that he hopes uh, hopes will get picked up by the by the TV director. But we've had Eric Bouyer, we've had Zach Brown. Everyone just sort of sticking the boot in at, at every opportunity, which is a. Uh, there, there has been a shift there, and I think it actually stretches back to Indianapolis. I remember Zach Brown, I was out there speaking to him after the race, and he was quite negative about Honda, because obviously there are a spate of Honda engine failures, one of which took out Alonso out of the race. Admittedly, completely independent program, that's that's HPD in, in North America, but still still Honda. But there seems to be a very, very clear kind of let, let the dogs loose on on Honda. So there's there's something they're trying to achieve there so what what do you think's going on there because they're not they're not being publicly supportive are they no they're not being publicly supportive and, and to be honest if you go way back to the beginning of 2015 when they, they first came together and that first test in, in barcelona um at that point in time i said i'm not seeing what i think mclaren need to be doing here you know honda great company i worked with them for quite a few years the, their biggest problem is they believe what they've got is the best in the world and while there's a blind side, that's what they'll. That's the way they'll keep working. They keep working flat out in what they're doing, and if it's in the wrong direction, you're going in the wrong direction. And until somebody can put their hand up and stop them, and and get them to turn around and go the opposite direction, they will just keep going. Um, but once they do click, once it does happen that they actually find their direction, um, then there's nobody better at you know optimizing that and getting it getting it sorted. So. Could this spec three be the the turning point? You know, if they can if they can find twenty or thirty horsepower, suddenly they've realised that what they had wasn't as good as it should be. You know, and and that's a big that's a big step. It's a big step for them. So I'm sitting here now, saying we're probably at a position where the the Honda thing could switch around. It won't be overnight because these things take too long, but it could switch around quite quite quickly. Um, but McLaren should have been doing what they're doing now back at the beginning of 2015 because it was it was easy to see that the writing was on the wall for this thing to turn out a disaster well i think right the way back to the the very first test they did at the end of 2014 in abu dhabi where the car barely moved and i think from that moment it was kind of a oh it was very clear that what honda thought they had wasn't what they had well it's changed the way of doing things but it's to change the philosophy you know the McLaren came from running the Mercedes engine in 2014, one of these current power unit spec engines. So it's got all the bits. It's McLaren know or knew what the recovery system was like on the on the Mercedes engine, how it, how they dissipated the energy, where they you know how they went about their, their work because that's part of the car. You know you don't you don't want to copy anything, but they knew where the turbos were. They knew you know if the turbos were big or smaller. Just they knew all that stuff. And yet it just seemed to be that Honda in Japan, building an engine, they had the curtains pulled down, they weren't looking out whatsoever. And McLaren weren't sort of helping them to understand the enormity of this project. And as I say, that's that's about the beginning of 2015 or the end of 2014. Would have been when I'd be starting to have you know, said, why are you doing like this? What's what's going on here? You know, we've just taken out the best engine potentially in the, in the pit lane, a team, a, a company that's done a very, very good job. And this is a sort of generic spec of what they use, and yet we're nowhere in that sort of not in that ballpark whatsoever. Now Honda might say, "Oh, but we're better than them." Well, prove it to me. You know, where is it if you're better than them? And it needed to be done way back then. Starting to you know to kick Honda right now. It's probably a little bit too late in the show, um, and it it won't build good relationships. So. You know, the project at the minute is, is very, very strained. Will, will McLaren disappear off and use a Mercedes engine next year? Well, if they do, it'll be interesting to see how good they really are, how good their car really is. Well, 2014 wasn't, wasn't great, was it? And I think the last time we've seen a McLaren chassis unquestionably performing very well was 2012. So you have to ask a few questions of that side of the team as well. I don't think it's like they've got the best car and a terrible engine, is it? No, it's not like that. It's not as black and white as that. I'm sure the car is, is very good. But, you know, we look at all this straight-line speed stuff. Um, Red Bull, for example, at Baku, went from being a mediocre straight-line speed car in the other races uh, in Canada to the fastest car in the straight in, in Baku. Um, 
they didn't do that by by Renault coming up with a new power unit. They did that by trimming their car and sorting the car out. So it's very easy to have a car that everybody goes, oh, this thing is fantastic around the corners. It's got so much grip and be 20, 20 miles an hour slower down the street because you're running the car inefficiently, you know. So I remember Martin Brundle doing a test in the Jordan at, at uh, Monza. We were going to Canada the week after this test, I think it was. So we tried a, a higher downforce setting on the car around Monza just to get um, the balance of the car sorted out a little bit. And Martin's first comment was, oh, it's much easier to drive. Couldn't we use this setup around, around Monza? But it's like three seconds slower around Monza <laughs> um, just because of the extra drag and the straight line speed. So everything's a compromise. You know, McLaren need to look at themselves a little bit more because I think there's a chance they could help Honda significantly more than they are helping Honda. And if Red Bull are able to trim their car out to get you know the car to be very performant in the straight line, and remember Red Bull were also very good at warming the tires up. You know, downforce and warming the tires up seem to come together. But um, they were they were able to run their car light on downforce as such, or light on drag, fast in the straight line, get the tires warm up, warm up quickly. The end result was the you know they they won the race not because of that all, but it, you know the, the whole package worked together very well and. Um, Maybe McLaren could do a little bit more to help Honda. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? There's going to be a lot to be decided over the next few months. Obviously, connected to Alonso's future, which there was, again, lots of rumour about. We saw that Flavio Briatore posted on Twitter, a shot of him at dinner with Toto Wolff and, and Nicky Lauda that gave rise to all sorts of Mercedes rumours. There was a photo of of uh, Alonso's manager, uh, Abad, uh, with Cyril Abitable in the paddock. So, Renault... Alonso Renault talks uh, being suggested. So there's all sorts of elements going on there and, and, and things at play. And obviously Alonso, ever mischievous, is sort of saying, yeah, I'm I'm happy I'll be winning next year, which obviously didn't specifically say a winning car in F1 or winning, but Alonso's obviously playing a few games there as well. And he, in fact, when Eric Bouillet described it as basically his worst weekend in motorsport on Saturday, Alonso was asked about that. He said, no, it's, it's been good for me. And then he was asked, well, is, is that is that because of future things? He said, no, it's just, it's just been good for me. So there's all the, this whole level of, of words being said in public and you don't know how much of it is just people having a little bit of fun and being a bit mischievous. How, man, how much of it is people, Alonso and McLaren, trying to make something else happen? It's, it just makes it an interesting talking point, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Alonso, over his, his last two or three moves in Formula One have been pretty poor decisions. So... For him to be pretty happy with what he's going to be doing next year, you'd have to put a question mark by the side of that. You know, the, the reality of it is there's probably uh, Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull who are, you could say, for 2018, you know, guaranteed winners. Those three will win some races in 2018. And there's two seats free there because Bottas and Raikkonen yeah. aren't locked in, whereas the others are. But are Ferrari going to have Alonso back? I wouldn't say Be surprised. So. Yeah, very, very surprised. Our Mercedes going to get rid of Bottas, who is working well with Lewis Hamilton. I wouldn't say he's a number two, but he's, he's a very good number 1B, I suppose you might call it. I think he'll back Lewis up if he, if he has to, um, or if he sees it right for the team. And I think he is very good at seeing what's right for the team individually. Uh, I don't think there's any politics between the two of them that we've seen yet. Um, he has a very close connection to to uh, Toto Wolff. Um, I think he's respected by Nicky. Is he the ultimate quickest? I don't think he's, I think he's pretty good. I think he just needs more time. The, you know, the change from Williams to driving for a um, three-time championship winning team is is a different pressure, and you have to get into that that pressure. You different expectations completely. He's come up with the goods numerous occasions. Um, he's fallen short a little bit, but give him a little bit of time and I think he'll become stronger. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the coming weeks and months. We'll get a few answers on on what Alonso's doing. Uh, but for now, I guess we've pretty much dug through the, the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. It's one of those races we could have uh, we could have spoken about for, for many hours. So thanks very much, Gary, for, for joining us. And if you've enjoyed listening to Gary, which, uh, which people regularly do, there is the chance to, to ask Gary some questions in his regular Ask Gary feature on autosport.com. You can email us on askgary at autosport.com or ask questions on Twitter with the hashtag AskGaryF1. And also we put some posts on Facebook where you can throw your questions. Every couple of weeks, Gary does that. And you can also read Gary's 
regular column uh, in alternating weeks uh, when it's not Ask Gary on, on Autosport. Check out autosport.com for all the latest news and coverage of Formula One and all the rest of motorsport. Also, Autosport Magazine out on Thursday, which will have full coverage of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, and as well we will have Gary's technical analysis of the, of the latest upgrades. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, you can get boosted deposits by 57% up to $1,000 on the Gambit DC app and up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost at Gambit DC retail locations. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.